This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. We are here again live with Mike Isretel and Mark. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey, everyone. So hopefully you heard kind of what Mike's about last time. You listened to that episode. If you didn't, I 100% recommend you check it out. We talked a lot about hypertrophy and also talked about fat loss and specifically for bodybuilding contest prep. So I definitely think that's something, if you're interested in those topics, you want to check out uh, because we covered a lot of stuff right there. So, <clears throat> Mark, do you want to introduce the topic that we're going to go over today? Yeah, so we thought it would be a cool topic to go over weak point training, um, starting maybe with a bodybuilder. So how would people go about programming for bringing up weak points or areas in their physique or enhancing that area, and maybe some considerations that they might want to take uh, maybe depending on training age and experience. For for bodybuilders specifically, we can do um, enhance their physique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys want me to just go off on that one? We're, yeah, go for it, and then we're kind of we'll come into it if we feel like there's something that we're like not sure about, or if we yeah. think we can have anything there. If you, if you have to do that. Totally. So there are a couple of like lead-in questions to ask when someone brings up weak points. The automatic first instinct a lot of us have is just to add more work to that area. And that may be one of the possibilities that you end up doing. But you have to ask a couple of questions before to make sure that you have ruled out all the other possibilities that are going on. And the very first question I like to ask for weak point training is, are you in a place, well, what do you want out of your bodybuilding career? Do you eventually want to be super jacked and lean years down the line and you're willing to do what it takes to kind of put your marbles in that really long time frame or do you want to look as balanced and aesthetic as you can now? Based on which one you choose, you know, so if you choose the second one, if you want balance and aesthetism right now, then yeah, there's some good reason to start specializing body parts, picking apart weak points, etc. If you are still at the beginning of your training career and you definitely want to be gigantic and lean at some point and you're willing to do what it takes to have that in a long view, I, I did that myself, then you probably should take into consideration that gigantic people aren't always balanced. Balance is something you can work on later when your health, joint health, muscle connectivity health, and your general ability to tolerate training stressors is uh, not that great anymore. Specialization training is easy because of one fundamental fact. It's easier to maintain than it is to gain. So if you have 290 pounds of shredded muscle, but your biceps are too small, 
it's easy to bring up your biceps, relatively speaking, compared to making sure you're always in proportion and taking and putting things on the back burner so often during your ascendancy that you only end up at 230 pounds, but hey, you're perfectly balanced. Well, about a year after, you're still perfectly balanced at 230, maybe 235, and that other guy who did it the right way, he's at 290, and now he has big biceps too, so he's perfectly balanced. So we don't want to have this, you know, what we want is to make sure we have a priority straight. The first five to ten years of someone someone's bodybuilding career where they want to be really good eventually should be based mostly, not wholly, but mostly in fundamental mass gain to be huge. Once you're huge, specialization is easy. The best analogy to this is kind of like uh, making a sculpture. First you slap on a shitload of clay, and then you start shaping it. If you slap shape, slap shape, slap shape, it takes a little longer, doesn't quite work that way, and um, it ends up kind of screwing you over. And, and I'll tell you this, when you get into an advanced training age, when you get older, injuries start to crop up. And if you told me I had to bring up one body part that was lagging, I could do it. If you said I had to get, in general, overall bigger, man, that's hard. That's for young people to do. <laughs> that's for younger people to do. And you had better put your marbles in, in that if that's what you want to do. Does that make sense? Because getting bigger requires you know, moderate to higher reps of squats, benches, deadlifts, that kind of stuff you can do when you're still injury-free, etc. kind of stuff gets really hard to do later. A lot of the reasons the, uh, the top pros train like they do is because they're too beat up to train like any other way. So save the chiseling for later is the first thing. But if you have cleared that question, then you and you may have answered whatever kind of answer that leads to specialization. Then we can go on and ask further questions to kind of delineate what, what to do. You guys with me so far on that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So looking to obviously develop overall mass is the number one goal, and even kind of five to if ten it's years. The number one goal. If yeah, if it's the number one goal, I guess because when everyone has their own strong and weak points. I mean, for me, for an example, I guess. A strong point for me has always been my biceps, so I've never really focused on bringing them up particularly until late, and then they kind of saw great results, and it was quite interesting to actually have done that. Um, I've always been under the impression, and I think a lot of people are, that we should, as bodybuilders, be looking for a symmetrical physique, which we should realize, and you've clearly pointed out, is the end goal, is to be the best bodybuilder. The biggest and most symmetrical is the end goal. Whereas in the short term, when we're developing our physique, we might have to go through periods of time where maybe we're not as symmetrical, but we're bigger. And in the end, we'll be at a better place. Is that roughly right? Absolutely. It works the same way with body fat levels. When you want to get as big as you can, you're going to have to get a little fat sometimes. Um, if you always want to be lean, you're never going to get that big. You can't, you can't, um, you can't engineer a car when it's on the racetrack. <laughs> you got to pull it off the track, and indie cars don't look that great when their wheels are taken off and their engine's out, <laughs> but that's how you make the changes, right? So just the same way, if you always want to be perfect, um, you're just never going to get that better, that much better of results. Cool. So would specialization training <laughs> really only come in once you're an advanced lifter then? So when you're kind of novice, intermediate, lifting, you probably wouldn't want to do those, or what are your thoughts on that, if we are going down the route of trying to be the biggest, best overall package at the end? Yeah, then yes, then you would probably want to not, not super specialize, or at least not spend too, too much of your training year specializing. I think most of your training year could be spent generalizing. A month here or there could be spent specializing, but 
you definitely want to make sure you're just growing overall. Because, like I said, bringing up one muscle group is not that hard. Bringing up an entire physique difficult. And as you age and accumulate experience <coughs> and injuries, it becomes really hard to bring up an entire physique. Um, so once we've answered that question, and if we have, say, answered, okay, we should specialize, we have to answer another question. So two questions, really. One, are we training? How is our overall training volume in relation to our total body system MRV? Okay, so your whole body has a maximum curl volume, some total of the amount of work you can do for every muscle group. If you exceed that, it doesn't matter what other muscle group you train, it's going to push you over the top and be way too much. So, for example, if you never train your hamstrings, but you train your quads and your delts and chest and everything so much that it's over your MRV, adding hamstring training probably won't make your hamstrings bigger. It'll just make you get sick. <laughs> You'll overreach enough to get sick, and then you will lose a bunch of gains that were, right? It's just the, because on hamstring day that you've added, you're supposed to be resting, and it's not enough rest anyway as it is. Now you're resting less, cortisol goes up, testosterone goes down, all those terrible things happen, right? So the first question you ask is, where are you in relation to MRV? And hopefully the answer is, you know, like right around it, pretty close. So then you're getting a good result. That's great. Next question is for the body part that you want to bring up, it's current training volume. Where is that in relationship to your MRV? That's an important question very few people ask. Because some people, you talk to them, and you say, what's your weak point? They go, man, chest, it just doesn't grow. How many sets do you for chest a week? 35. Okay. Do you really think going to 40 is going to make you bigger? You're probably doing too much. And their stories, pro bodybuilders will tell you, I used to train biceps three times a week. I switched to twice a week and I got bigger. Well, probably because they were over their MRV. And I'm not probably, almost certain. So you've got to try to find out where your MRV is for the particular muscle groups in which you estimate that you are lagging. Right? Even before that, we could get really nasty and ask another question. Is that body part really out of proportion, or are you just really obsessed with it? Because some people think, I have to bring up my biceps. Like, man, what about your triceps? They're like, I don't really care about them. Okay, right? So if you want to be a good bodybuilder, an aesthetic physique, it's a good idea for someone else to look at your physique, people you trust, and say, hey, you need to bring this up, you need to bring that up, right? You may be a very good judge of it, and a lot of people can be very objective, but maybe it's a good idea to see if you really want to bring that up. Me, I seem to, you know, if someone says, hey, Mike, you know, you can have quads double the size of now, would you? I'm like, yes, right now. I want them right now. But it'll throw off your physique. I don't give a shit. I want to be free, right? So, you know, <laughs> I, may, I may think it's a good idea to specialize for quads overall for bodybuilding. So once you have zoomed in on the, bo the body part you think is lagging, and let's say, if, let's assume it really is lagging, you've got to see where your current training is MRV relationship to that particular body part's MRV. So if it's over the MRV, you know that the answer is to lower your training volume. If it's much less than MRV, then you know the answer is going to be to raise your training volume. That makes sense, right? If it's uh, right around your MRV, then, you know, <laughs> we'll have to look at some other options. So if so, so, so it's, if it's over MRV, our solution is really simple. So we'll take this one by one. Over MRV, we just reduce training volume, and we'll get better. Great. If we're below MRV for that body part, and let's say we're below MRV for the system as a whole, we take the remainder, so we have system MRV, we have that body part's MRV, and this is how much we're actually doing for that body part. 
So we go like that. <laughs> we increase how much work we're doing for that lagging body part. So now we're filling up our whole MRV, but we're filling it up with the rest is bicep work, for example, right? we bring up our biceps. If we find that we our MRV is here and everything is filled in and that body part isn't being trained enough or even if it's being trained to its body part specific MRV, right? Oh, well, let's take that a little later. So if it's, being, if, if it's not being trained enough but you've run out of, of total system MRV, we have to take that uh, and, and analyze that situation. How does that happen? Fact. Ready, guys? Fact. Big claim of mine that I'm very willing to stand by. The sum of all of your per-muscle group MRVs in any human body is going to be higher than the system MRV for the whole body. Put another way, put simply, if you trained every muscle as hard as it could individually recover, you would overwhelm the shit out of your body, you would overreach, get sick, start getting smaller. Imagine what that would take to get every single body part completely trained. It would. It, 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 nobody can do it, right? Because you think, oh, on a specialization cycle, I can do 25 sets for chest. Great. Now it's 25 sets for chest, quads, biceps, shoulders, everything. You, you wouldn't survive. Yes. So by definition, we have to take some kind of priority structure in our training. We can be generalists. If we're pure generalists, we're never training anything as hard as it could be trained, but we're training everything pretty hard. Maybe our MRV for each body part individually would be 25, we're training everything at 20 because that's all our body can survive. Like if we pick up one of those at five, automatically it's already too much. <clears throat> so if the case is that you're already training at MRV, then we have to do the standard bodybuilding juggling of if you want bigger biceps, you've got to take away from somewhere else. Take away from back training, take away from tricep training, take away from leg training so you have systemic capacity to recover at that. And if it is, in fact, that you're below your MRV for your biceps, then it's okay to raise volume for biceps because they'll recover just fine. And then uh, you can do that via specialization and still be within your MRV because you moved something else out of it. <coughs> now, the situation of where you're uh, already at your MRV for that muscle group and you're within total MRV for your body and you still want to bring up that muscle group, you're already doing everything it takes to bring up that muscle group. We're left with a couple of slight modifications that we can make to training, but they're slight and their effects are going to be slight. You've already done the biggest stuff. Some of these modifications include training a body part when it is fresh. That means both in the beginning of a training session and structured in such a way within the weekly microcycle scheme that it's not tired from other stuff. For example, if we want to bring up our spinal erectors, we can definitely train them first by training deadlifts first and then doing some back extensions or whatever else comes after that. And let's say we're doing that in a leg workout, we've got to save squats for last. If we properly design, so that's a proper design, what we also have to do is make sure in the last couple of days we didn't train back and we didn't train legs. If we did train legs, we did mostly leg presses and lunges and not something like heavy squats that taxes the lower back because we don't want our lower back to be tired when it comes in for a super important mondo workout where it's placed first. And people will do that. They'll be like, oh, man, my chest is so sore, but I got to blast it. Like, good luck getting anything out of it, <laughs> right? Um, so, so then you got to rely on sort of not tricks, but, you know, manipulations that are more, uh, more particular, less effective because they're more minute 
but generally speaking, I think finding that, making sure that you're training at the MRV of the body part and making sure that it's your total body MRV is in check. There is some people who would have the argument that if you reduce other body parts and get way below your total body MRV, your recovery capacity generally goes up so much that you can expand that per muscle group MRV. I don't think that's largely true. I think there's some truth to that a little bit. So, for example, if you train everything else hard, but, you know, within MRV of the total body, that your biceps have 20 sets in them. If you stop training upper body altogether, your biceps now have 25. Maybe. But there's definitely local factors that preclude that. So I think if you really want to prioritize, you could drop all of the rest of your body training maybe take 80 or 90% of your MRV and then just try to trash your biceps, but you've got to make sure there's no guarantee that you're not going to go to just bicep overload altogether. Like for, for example, if you decided to do 10 sets of leg presses to failure and 10 sets of squats to failure every day, um, that total volume load, even if you only train legs per week, is going to be about as much as you train for the whole body. But that doesn't mean your legs are going to receive the growth that your whole body usually does. As a matter of fact, after the second session, they're going to start to get smaller. Um, so there are limits on per muscle group MRV that are distinctly different. or they're, they're pretty capped, and there's nothing much you can do about them. Total body recovery is not going to help because it doesn't have anything to do with that local musculature. Right? There are local musculature limits on recovery speed and, and how much volume you can tolerate. So more or less, if you're already doing... Uh, the MRV for that body part, your MRV for your your whole body is in check. And if you're making sure that you're training that body part fresh, making sure that you're training it uh, when it's fresh both acutely and chronically, uh, man, I think you've done just about everything you can. And some people, they already are doing that, and they still say, you know, I'm still not recovering, or I'm still, you know, not getting the gains I want. And to those folks, I'd say, first of all, keep it up, because gains are accumulating over time. And second of all, you know, some body parts are just going to be a struggle. Uh, there's pro bodybuilders that don't have every body part in check. You know, um, a lot of the guys uh, who are in the IFBB are of West African descent, right? And they have small gastrocnemius musculature, small soleus musculature. They have really small calves. And that is an adaptation that probably is in, in part related to sprint speed because you don't want a big shank weight and uh, you want a really tight, uh, long tendinous structure there, which is why West Africans are also vastly overrepresented in, in uh, distance or in uh, short distance sprinting. But, you know, you think those guys aren't doing everything it takes to grow their calves? Uh, Victor Martinez still has small calves. There's a bunch of those guys have small calves. Dexter Jackson, beautiful physique. Calves, Ronnie Coleman, nasty calves. Do you think Ronnie Coleman left any stone unturned in trying to train his cast? Of course not. So if Ronnie Coleman can have a weak body part, you probably can too. Yeah. And uh, then you could decide if you want symmetry over mass or whatever. I, mean, I had a guy on Facebook tell me that uh, you know I had grown my quads way out of proportion to my calves. And, 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 and that was a fine critique. He was right. Um, it, am I not going to stop me from trying to get enormous quads? Eh, hell no, right? Uh, it, funny enough, I was like... I have like, you know, 19-inch or 20-inch calves. My calves are big. But my quads are like really big, so, you know, it <laughs> looks kind of weird. Uh, I, I don't care. A bunch of people want pro shows like that, right? So, in, 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 you know, if I was neglecting my calves, I could be butthurt about that comment. I could be like, no, you, you fucking, you're a piece of thing. 
But, uh, you know, I'm training my calves really hard, and I'm trying to train them, and my calves get sore, and they grow consistently. It's not a problem area for me, so it's just the way the cookie crumbles. Like, you can't have all your – they can't all be your best body parts. Uh, and, if, and if you choose to have everything in symmetry completely, by definition, you are choosing to limit all of your muscles to the growth rate and size potential of your worst genetic musculature. So if you're going to be completely symmetrical – you may only weigh 180 pounds ever, lean. If you choose to violate symmetry to some extent, you may weigh 200. Yep. But, but somebody can say, and then your forearms really aren't that big. Well, if my forearms were going to be big, then I would have to weigh a lot less because there's no way they're getting anything bigger. And uh, you, you can't infinitely bring it up. And, and I will also say this uh, just while we're talking. There are people out there that will tell you there are tricks and this and that that you can do and everyone can bring up lagging body parts. And that's just not true. Some body parts are really hard to bring up, and they just really slow. And you don't ever have to stop training them hard or stop trying, but you've got to accept realistic limitations. Or, or not, and you can just find out after you're 45 years old and you're not growing anything anymore that that's the biggest your calves ever got, no matter what you did. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and to you, I, again, I bring the, the example of Dexter Jackson and, and various other people. Branch Warren, another older bodybuilder, his upper body is never going to match his legs. Um, and the only way it does is because Branch Warren legitimately has gone through periods of his life where he doesn't train legs for a year or six months at a time. And only then do they get small enough to make his gigantic upper body look normal. Because if Branch Warren trained his legs his entire career like he wanted to or like he could, my God, he'd look like a T-Rex or something like that. It would be, <laughs> I'd love to see that. Right? He'd blow Tom Platt out of the water almost certainly. But, uh, it, you know, again, a trade-off between symmetry and size, for sure. That's a great what point. What do you guys think about that? I think, I, I think it's, that was a really cool point about being symmetrical and being only ever going to be as big as your weakest body part. Um, I think that was a great point. And I also think what people have got to remember is what you touched on. We're talking about five or ten years of training here. Uh, you know, the long game, whereas people want the symmetrical huge body like now and if they go through a if they go through one or two mesocycles um, and they're not seeing results then they, they might think oh I've got a weak body part I've got a lagging body part where perhaps not they just haven't been training for long enough and giving it that time to to grow because I mean growing muscle does take time and uh, yeah we're talking years here and not months of training blocks. Something I'd like to ask you, Mike, as I think the listeners would be really interested, and I would as well, actually, to hear what your definitions of novice, kind of intermediate and advanced trainees would be, because I think it's kind of in the literature and out there, it's, it's a bit wishy-washy. Some people, like powerlifters, define it by how strong they are, like, can you do double your body weight in a squat, maybe you're advanced. And then some people do it by training years, but I think that gets a bit wishy-washy as well because different people develop at different rates. And you might not, well, have a good nutritional training plan, but you could be genetically elite and see kind of advanced results very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, I'd like to hear what you kind of have a, as a definition there, Mike. Uh, so what I would say is that, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to define a beginner, immediate, advanced with body size or with strength. Because, like you said, the genetically freaky people could look advanced but be beginners. 
into people who are really advanced and need advanced training to continue to progress and have advanced problems could classify as beginners if you classified it based on how big they are. Like, I knew a guy back in college who competed in bodybuilding. He was my height, and he competed at uh, 132-pound weight class or something like that. Um, you know, he had been training for years. He needed the kind of training to continue to progress that we would describe as intermediate or advanced training. He was not a beginner. But how many beginners even have that little muscle mass? Sorry if I offend anybody. 132 pounds. Jesus. A lot of people in high school weigh that much. You know, a lot of people in high school have that LBM. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those situations where it's not a personal judgment against anyone, but classifying him as beginner would be would just be wrong, right? Because you'd be like, oh, you're a beginner. You still need to do just the compound basics or, or something. And he'd be like, are you kidding me? I've been doing body part specialization for years. He'd be like, oh, how come you're not big? Well, you know, genetics or dieting issues or something like that, combination of factors. So, so I like to classify advancement in years of training because that really does determine how close to your genetic peak, et cetera, you're getting and it determines where your priority should probably lie and what kind of gains you can expect relative to where you started. And there's no, there's nothing set in stone, but I think generally, generally, very generally, you know, zero to, to five years in bodybuilding is beginner. Five to ten would be intermediate. Ten plus would be advanced. Uh, we could very much debate those. It could be a little bit different, but I'd say that's pretty good. And I can qualify why I think that. In the first five years of your training, most people can just eat and train and grow. They don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> there are no stall plateaus that last any meaningful length of time. And the only plateaus that happen is if you train completely wrong and overreach and stuff like that. After five years, between five and ten, you're still making pretty good progress, but things get a little bit trickier. Some progress slows down. You can experience some plateaus. After 10 years, gaining additional muscle becomes difficult, officially difficult. And you so start to accumulate, usually people accumulate some injuries as well, and you have to get more creative with your training. And then you also probably have about as big of a base of muscularity as you ever will, and you can start to transition into more uh, fine-tuning kind of training rather than trying to build more raw mass. You can start to, by fine-tuning, I mean you can start to back off on muscle groups that you know aren't going anywhere and that are already good and start to really assault muscle groups that are bad. So really working on weak points is one of the things that advanced bodybuilders do. Also, advanced bodybuilders can compete more and be leaner in their off-seasons because there's no more point for them to get big and compete less. They're just not making the kind of gains that you think. Now, the idea of what kind of drugs you take eventually does pervert that to some extent, but it doesn't really pervert it because then we can talk about uh, beginner, immediate, advanced with respect to the drugs. So you can say, well, someone who's really advanced can start taking insulin for the first time and put on 30 pounds of muscle in a year. Yes, that actually can happen. But then you have to talk about someone who's advanced in relationship to their insulin use, right? First couple of cycles, great, everything's great. Then, man, your gut starts to grow and muscles are kind of like, we've had just about enough of this. 
and then you can't just run infinity cycles forever and continue to maintain your aesthetics and continue to get bigger, uh, certainly at the ex massive expense of your health. So even with regard to to drugs, it's one of those situations where, yeah, that's very much somebody can be described as a beginner with drugs and intermediate with drugs and advanced with drugs. And the same kind of constraints apply with drugs as with your career. Now, I think intelligent bodybuilders are interested in using performance-enhancing supplements. I think most of them get to at least intermediate and hopefully advanced drug-free and then hop on the wagon and then they can continue to make great gains and the overall sum total magnitude of where they end up is the highest and also at the smallest cost to their health. But I've seen lots of people at the beginner drug-free status <laughs> jump on drugs. and you know, They can just talk to drug-free people who are more muscular than them and try to live with fat. <laughs> so uh, so I, don't, I, think, I think it's all about how long you have been doing something that really determines it and, and for drug-free and not drug-free. And then I guess you kind of know what your, well actually to, just to touch on this because I might make some people feel better who are around 130 pounds, um, is that when I came, I'd been training kind of not properly for a few years, had an accident, was in hospital for a month, long story short, I lost a lot of weight and I actually came out at around 135 pounds and I'm 5 foot 10, so mm -hmm. I was really skinny. So I was basically back to beginner, and now I'm still 5'10", I'm 180 pounds, probably a similar body fat to what I came out of hospital. And so, I mean, I'm getting towards that intermediate advanced sort of stage that you're saying, but I think a lot of people can identify kind of their, rather than looking at where they are muscularity-wise and focusing more on the, the number of years they've been training, because if you're a genetic freak, you'll know within like a year of training, because your mm -hmm. results will probably be... Yeah. double what your mate who is very average <laughs> so I think that's that's something that you can talk about at least just identify it as an individual so you can't don't I think a lot of people in bodybuilding get too caught up in comparing themselves to other people they got caught up in fat-free mass indexes but they should just kind of focus on doing the things right for themselves and their own progression and they probably see better results that way yeah yeah the fat-free mass index uh, I think Greg Knuckles pretty much beat this to death <laughs> But um, rightly so. The fat-free mass index suffers from quite a, a bit of limitation. Um, mostly, the fat-free mass index has been turned into a troll, um, a troll tool to, to accuse people of drug use. If you're above 25, uh, you're on drugs. So that's why. Totally, <laughs> totally. And you know that that is certainly statistically true. On average, that's definitely the case the average person has FFMI higher than 25 is on drugs. But then when you try to prove that individuals are on drugs, you know, like, that's almost like the closest analogy I can come up with that is like, just like, uh, you know, sheer racism or something like that, where it's like, well, all Jews are, I'll say all Jews are stupid. Okay, fine. Maybe on average they are. Let's just go with that. And then, and then you come up to a particular Jew, and you say you're stupid because you're Jewish. Now they may very well be the case that all Jews are, you know, on average more stupid. But if it's a bell curve, right? So you could be talking to a Jewish Nobel Prize winner, right? And you'd make a fool out of yourself. So uh, it's one of those situations where you're not, you know, you don't typically not a racist asshole walk around accusing people of things that their group norm is known for. You can assume it in your own private life, but it's certainly not a good idea to base your internet credibility on a particular individual 
that can get out of hand because 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 there is a bell curve. You can be mistaken. Um, uh, one of the he's now actually a for a, a fellow consultant of mine at Renaissance, Jared Feather. Jared Feather's lifetime drug free. I put my professional reputation on that claim uh, because he's one of my very good friends. Like. You know, in the bodybuilding world, you know when your friends are using, okay? Like, it's not like fucking rocket science. So, Jared competes at, I think, about 5'10", 5'11", and he steps on stage at around 180 pounds, right? He's really bit shredded, basically. Uh, more or less, right? And with, like, super crazy muscle bellies that I hate him for. Like, his <laughs> waist doesn't exist for some reason. It's just missing. So, um, when I posted a picture of him, not even as good as he is now, and I said, you know, drug-free, Jared, he's great. I've had guys messaging me like, Doc, you don't really think he's drug-free. I was about to be like, no, you tell me what my friend is doing yeah. just off the fucking internet. And I have one example, uh, which is an unbeatable, logical sort of parable that I use for people who start getting really crazy with the drug accusations for individuals. One example, which is not beatable, I'll share it with you guys. And if you're ever interested in debating, you can bring it up. So... People say, oh, 200 pounds lean, definitely drug-free. You say, okay, Big Rami, Big Rami, you guys know who that is, right? He's on stage at 315 pounds. He's been training probably like five years, which is insane. He has elite genetics. So then you ask those people, say, how big do you think Big Rami would be without any drugs? If your answer is 170 or 180 pounds, you're nuts. There's no drugs like that. If there were, I'd take them. <laughs> Big Ramey, with his genetics, may have been a lean 250 on stage, drug-free. Yeah. But, but he's a freak. And then if you accused him of drugs, you would be wrong and embarrassed because he was not on drugs. And you say, there's no way he's 250 on, uh, on stage, drug-free. Imagine in an alternate universe where Big Rainey's drug-free. And some guy would be like, there's no way. He's 245 on stage and he's drug-free. That's bullshit. I bet my life that he's on drugs. And then the guy's like, no, he's not on drugs. You're an idiot. And this guy goes, well, you know, if he was on drugs, how big would he be? 315 on stage? Ha, ha, ha. That's laughable. Boom. Alternate reality. Our Earth. He is 315 on stage. And that guy's like, oh, shit. They make people like that? Yeah, they sure as hell do. Who's that one natural guy? Doug, what's his name? Doug Miller, yeah. Yeah, I bet he's drug-free. Yeah, and if Doug Miller took drugs, he beat everybody. He yeah. beat, he'd probably beat Phil Heath. Is, is that really a surprise that people like that exist? Right? Like, uh, here's another guy who's not drug-free. Dallas McCarver. You guys know who that is? Dallas McCarver. So, so he's, in the, he's in the Olympia this year. He's a gigantic, gigantic person. And he's relatively young. He's like in his mid-20s. He played offensive lineman in football, which is in American football. It's the biggest position, like gigantic people. You know, he weighed a drug-free, fat, but muscular, like 330 when he was in college. And that's the average O-lineman size in like the pro leagues. Is it really that big of a surprise that he's supposed to be that gigantic? No, he was huge to begin with. Yeah. If Dallas McCarver was drug-free and did drug-free bodybuilding, he might have stepped on stage at 230, 240 at like six feet or whatever. There's people like that. Yeah. Now, if you meet a guy at the gym who's like six feet and he's 230 or 240 and got veins coming out everywhere, if your first guess is that he's drug-free, you're an idiot. If your first guess is that he's taking drugs, you're intelligent. 
But if you're going to base your life reputation on the fact that he's definitely on drugs, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I sure as hell wouldn't do that. Especially for edge cases that are like under 220. You're really under 220, you're going to say he's definitely on drugs? Like, yeah, if he's 5'4", right? But like a 5'10", under 220, super lean, and people are like, drugs. You know, uh, man, there's people that are 5'10", that are 290, 300 on stage. Mm. Are they on super drugs? Like, you know, like what, what did that guy not take? Like, if he's on drugs, he's taking all the wrong shit. He's not taking enough, you know what I mean? So uh, that kind of, there's a big difference between certainty and probability, and I think a lot of people pretty serve pretty well to kind of figure that out. So there's there's my rant on the matter. I think people can even be hypocritical with that because they make their point. They'll be like, he's got to be on drugs because they're then referred to someone at the other end of the bell curve who is absolutely, like, they've got the worst genetics in the world, and they're referred to that person and be like, they've been training for 15 years, and they're smaller than me. And so they actually be hypocritical. Cause they're being yeah, but so then are you on drugs? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. You know, and, and that, that whole thing, and this is going to come off mean and a bit rude, but it's true. A lot of the people, not all of them, a lot of the people that are quick to accuse others of drug use have shitty fucking genetics. You have shitty fucking genetics. I'm sorry you have shitty genetics. It sucks. I don't have the best genetics for everything. But, you know, because they base it off of their own experience. So they've, they've been training for four years, and they're benching 70 kilos for a one rep max. And some guy benches it for 10 on his first try, never having lifted. They're going to be like, dude, that guy's a freak. And then a couple months later, he's going to be like even bigger and stronger. They'll be like, dude, he's got to start a some on cycle. There's no way a drug-free guy is like that. You know, I think it all comes back. A lot of things come back to high school with me. Just think back to high school where there was one guy who – who, I don't know, wrestled or played lacrosse or even even played, you know, soccer or football, like you guys call it. And he was like 85 kilos with abs for no reason. He didn't really lift weights much. We all know that guy. I know like five of those guys from my high school. Are those guys all like steroid dealers or something? Like, did they just find them? They didn't even lift weights, but somehow they found steroids? Like, I assure you, finding steroids is not that easy. It's not just like behind the GNC or something like that, like, <laughs> behind the vitamin shop, guy with a trench coat. So, you know, people who in high school were the small kid that got bullied and they didn't have great genetics and never really played any formal sports and never were that good at them, graduated high school weighing like 60 kilos or 65 kilos, they struggle for years to get up to 80 kilos, and then a guy starts at 85 kilos and gets up to 110 kilos drug-free, and they'll go, that guy's on drugs. No, that's just the same guy from your high school, dude. He was always going to be better at the sport than you if he ever tried. Funny enough, I have pretty good genetics, but there's guys at my high school that if they trained with weights as much as I have and done all the things I have, fuck, they'd be out of this world. And most people just don't bodybuild because it sucks, you know? Like, it's really hard, uh, and it's boring, right? We love it, but most people don't, don't agree. So I think people just forget, like, look, if you don't have the greatest genetics to start out with, then, you know, what the hell? And, you know, and, there, and there's... Uh, it goes both ways too. You'll have I, I know a lot of guys who have used drugs, or even just guys with really great genetics who will refer to some researchers in the field who are researching um, some some of the pioneers in our field of hypertrophy study, and they'll say, "You really going to listen to that guy? That guy's small." First of all, their research production has nothing to do with how big they are. 
I don't I have any idea what that means. Okay, that's not the way science works. You conduct studies that the truth is revealed to you. You're not just big and you decide that this is true. Yeah. First of all, second of all, people have different genetics, man. And if someone started out weighing 55 kilos and now they weigh 70 or 75, they they may know 50 times more than the average pro because they had to struggle for every fucking kilo because their genetics suck. If I'm going to be coached by someone in bodybuilding, I want to be coached by someone with shitty genetics. Because then they're gonna they're gonna have overturned every single stone to try to get where they are. Good genetics coaches, I've met a bunch of them. Most of them suck. Some of them are really good. Most of them have no idea what's going on. They're like, yeah, just uh, eat less and train really hard. And like, in you know, I deal with a lot of people who are using various performance enhancing drugs, and you see some of the cycles these people put together that are really good, and you're like, well, you have no idea what's going on. And they don't. They just everything comes naturally to them. Right? There are stories about like top pros that asked for advice for various other drug gurus, and the drug guru is like, you're not seriously taking what you're saying. And they're like, yeah, isn't this the good stuff? And they're like, I, how the hell are you this jacked and lean? And they're like, no, okay. <laughs> you want that guy to coach you? Right? So we have to be careful in assuming a variety of things. People that are skinny and small, uh, relatively speaking, may know vast quantities about training. And people that are gigantic may know not much at all. And on the other hand, people that are skinny and small sometimes are on anabolic steroids. And people that are pretty gigantic, not extremely, but gigantic and lean, can be drug-free. And, of course, statistically, there's truths there that, on average, yada, yada, but we've got to be really careful of accusing ind you know, individuals. I had this happen to me um, where, you know, one I, I like it when people think they're clever on Facebook uh, or something, but, but, but they're really not. They're like the 15th person to say that. So one guy was like, I posted a picture of me like jacked and lean, and I posted my height and weight. He's like, hey, uh, Dr. Mike, what's your FFMI? And I was like, hmm, well, my weight and height's listed, isn't it? And he's like, yep. And I'm like, you know basic math. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, why don't you calculate it? He's like, no, I want you to say it. And I was like, I'm just going to drop it. But I've taken a step further. I was like, are you accusing me of drug use? And they'll be like, well, it would only make sense. Would it, are you on drugs? And I'm like, you want me to admit to illegal substance use on the internet? And they're like, like okay, <laughs> I'm a professional in a field. You live in your mom's basement. When you admit to weird shit, nobody cares. I can't admit to weird shit even if it's true or not true. So they're like, so are you on drugs or not? I'm like, what's my FFMI? They're like, 28. I'm like, make your own conclusions. They're like, okay. And it goes pretty fine. I'm just like, like, what planet do you live in? You know, like... Um, so it's, it's one of the situations that's like, uh, I think a lot of times on these kind of emotional subjects of how good, is your how good are your genetics or who's using drugs or not, normally intelligent people, rational people, will just abandon all hope and just start going crazy, And uh, especially when you have one lightning rod for them. So that FFMI, uh, the people who developed it uh, were very intelligent about its conclusions. The people who use it uh, online oftentimes are just use it like a, a yes/no litmus test. It was never designed for that. Absolutely not. Yeah. Another consideration here: the FMI for drug-free bodybuilding, etc., was developed on drug-free bodybuilders. Um, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in the United States, almost almost everyone with good genetics goes into not drug-free bodybuilding eventually because that's where the money is. That's where the fame is. That's where you go up against the best. Yeah. Drug-free bodybuilding in the U.S. There's some. There are some very impressive people. But the majority of the people in drug-free bodybuilding, like you look at them and you're like, you have bad genetics by anyone's standards. 
and, and they just choose to be in drug free, maybe because they made the calculation that why the hell am I going to take all these drugs and I'm not going to amount to shit anyway, which is a fine idea, right? But it's one of those situations where you're like, well, the best drug free bodybuilder is only 210 pounds. But does he have the best genetics of anyone? No, because people like Dallas McCarver could have been 240 lean, but they yeah. choose to be on drugs because that's they want the best. They want Mr. Olympia. There is no natural Mr. Olympia. Nobody knows who that guy is anyway. So we gotta we gotta remember that as well. It's funny because people will accept it in other sports, but when it comes to kind of how you look and muscles, they people don't like to accept it. So people accept that someone's maybe better at football than them or soccer or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, but they're not happy to accept that someone could have better genetics for building muscle. It's People get really touchy about it. And I think you touched on a really good point in that a lot of people will kind of assume someone's very knowledgeable if they're huge and jacked, whereas I think it's becoming better, but maybe just within the niche that is the evidence-based fitness kind of crowd. We're and, small. Yeah, we're like we think we're big. I think we're big, but we're not. We're very small, and mm -hmm. we want to reach more people because we need the word to come out. Because if people like Brad Schoenfeld, like all the researchers out there who are doing the hypertrophy type work, who are, a lot of them aren't big and jacked. Uh, they are just kind of people that like lifting, but also do a lot of research, and their knowledge is insane. And if people discount that, they're actually going to hurt their own progress, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy to me. You know, a personal goal of mine is to get as jacked and lean as I can using a variety of methods to to, to buttress the evidence-based stuff because I'm, I, I just got, I, I'm really tired of that, that, oh, but you're not actually jacked. You don't know anything. Well, you know, hopefully through the end of my bodybuilding career, eventually where I end up, I'll be so jacked and lean. And in some respects, I'm already there. Like... No, I, I am very comfortable making claims about science and the way muscles grow. And yeah, I'm also Jack, so fuck you. Um, <laughs> and and, and I, 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 this is, I do it kind of begrudgingly. I actually do want to get as gigantic and lean as possible privately. But I think that people discount a lot of folks who really know what they're doing um, because uh, of the idea that those folks personally aren't that jacked and lean. Uh, if they're scientists, then you got to read the science they put out if they are claiming that they have the holy grail of hypertrophy and they are gurus that don't rely on science and they're not jacked, then you got a problem. Because <laughs> how the hell am I supposed to believe you if you're not jacked? You have no evidence for how to get jacked and you're claiming that you have all the answers. I mean, good luck. You better coach some really good people or something like that. So, you know, on the other end, we, we do have to give some, some credence to the idea that... Um, you know, because, you know, the pendulum swings both ways. Yes, it's bad to automatically assume that someone not jacked that puts out good science or really knows a lot of stuff isn't a good source of advice. But it's also stupid to say that really jacked people, especially large groups of them that agree on things, are completely wrong, stupid, idiot, meathead, retards that we never should listen to because they're wrong and dumb about everything. And it's just they're all steroid addicts, you see. And, uh, you know, I weigh 120 pounds, but as soon as I take one testosterone pill or whatever it is they're taking, uh, then I'm going to be 280 lean also because it's as easy as that. And these people are mindlessly stupid and we shouldn't listen to them. They know a lot of stuff. And there's a difference between formalized knowledge and informal knowledge that you can't verbalize, but you know. And a lot of them do a lot of the right stuff. The If it fits your macro, swing is a really good illustration of that. So people kind of figured, okay, you know, 
people have been eating clean for a long time before shows. Foods, rice, and chicken, and broth. And someone, you know, had the bright idea of saying, well, it doesn't have to be that way. If you make, meet your macros, you get most of the benefits anyway. And that's on a technical level completely correct as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough. Because if you actually try to eat like candy during prep, you forgot the food palatability reward hypothesis applies to that. So as soon as you have half a Snickers bar, you're going to go insane and you're going to eat someone's face off their body. That's how the Miami zombie happened. I'm just kidding. But um, you're going to find that controlling your hunger is almost impossible if you eat junk food on a prep. Uh, I've tried it. It's worked like total shit. I switched back to clean eating, which really is boring eating, and I can eat high volumes of high fiber, high water, whole grain, fruit, and lean meat foods, stay satiated, and not really have a problem uh, losing body fat. I'm not going insane from a ton of hunger. So it doesn't matter what those bodybuilders who all eat clean say why, because they'll say dumb shit like oh, there's the skin or weird shit like that. Um, it doesn't matter what they're saying. What they're doing probably works because if it really worked just as well to eat Snickers bars and get into contest shape, you'd have a lot more guys doing it None of these guys really want to eat this crap that they eat, brown rice and all this shit. Who the hell wants to eat that? I'd rather eat pizzas and get in shape too. Try it. It doesn't work nearly as well because you're going to go psychologically insane before it ever before you ever get shape. And and you know, does that refute IFOM as a philosophy? Absolutely not. If you're maintaining, IFOM is great. If you're massing, IFOM is the best because you can eat great foods, tons of junk food, as long as you eat macros, you can get enormous. Uh, it, without having to stuff yourself with clean food all the damn time, which makes no yeah. sense. But you know, as you are dieting, and the further you get to a diet, you will discover that bodybuilders that are jacked and lean do know a lot of really, really good things. And one of them is that uh, foods uh, that are boring are just more sustainable on a diet. They avoid all kinds of really crazy complications. And, 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 and you know, there are a variety of things yet to be discovered that I think science will eventually discover that the biggest guys in the world who have been doing the identical shit for 30 years that they will be vindicated in some things. In some things they won't. In some things they've been doing wrong. Uh, but you know, one of them that I suspect is that we're going to find some kind of long-term compelling evidence eventually that lower training frequencies in much in the very large, very muscular individuals have some kind of advantage. Because the number of bodybuilders at the highest levels that train with high-frequency programs, real high-frequency, five days a week for the same muscle group, they don't exist. And, and I mean they don't. I mean they there's not the number of them that train the same muscle group three times a week. You can count on one hand. Twice a week, you can count on two hands. Once or once and a half times a week, so to speak, uh, is everyone else. So, uh, and that's one of those things that I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do. But when 30 years of competitive bodybuilders have been doing the same thing, man, there might be something to it. And and I have my suspicions as to why. I think gigantic muscles require so much energy for recovery that you can't overload them multiple times a week. It would be pointless. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things where we have to come at it from both perspectives. There's a place for science, formal science, and there's a place for evidence of what do the best do. And you know where these people agree and where these people agree, this is where good programming is. Little science quirks, I wouldn't worry about that. Little programming quirks, I wouldn't worry about that. I think that the best is together. Definitely. It's, it, it's having that open mind as well that although we know what we know now, it's almost being prepared for it to change at any time and being able to accept and adapt that uh, science has only given us a, 
a reference point to what we know now. And uh, yeah, that could that could well change in the future. I think that's awesome. Sure. Sure. There's also a big limitation of what science can conclude. Yeah, yeah. You know, most of the most of the studies are on uh, on undergraduate students. You know, the, you know they're untrained or the criteria a lot of times is one year of training. Like what? What? That's a noob. You know. Yeah. So they'll say trained athletes respond great to five times a week squatting frequency. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, one like year of training. The training studies are normally they're not like long macro cycles in length they're very short and so it's hard to really delve and get much from that I completely agree you need to have that experience and the evidence kind of taken together and when you've got a lot of studies confirming a lot of things yeah take yeah. that when you've got a lot of experience confirming a lot of things look at it and see where the science is kind of saying yes um, just to come back to the main topic of this podcast and actually I think we're gonna have to come to a powerlifting type weak point training in another podcast because I think we've kind of beaten this one to death and we can do that for that one as well. I think a lot of people for sure. take, that, take that away. That is also a very technical discussion by itself. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so we don't want to go too far um, and sure. we'll get on to that next time um, if that's all right. And I just okay. wanted to talk about with this specialization, we've obviously talked about the fact you have like a limited MRV and then so you can't maximally train when you're advanced especially every muscle group at its maximal MRV because every muscle group has its own so then you can take away from one give it to the other one and I want people to realize also that MRV isn't kind of like you don't have a hundred MRV all the time like a figure it can change throughout weeks months years mm -hmm. like it changes like you say and that I think is important what I wanted to maybe ask is when we're talking about programming for this, is it kind of when we talk about specialization, is it one body part or could you maybe pick an upper and a lower body part? Uh, something I've been trying recently is kind of picking two for my upper body and then maybe picking quads or hamstrings and then abs or calves and using that sort of approach. As of, I'm not that advanced so I don't need like a ton on one body part. I thought maybe someone intermediate might do well from like multiple specialization parts. Would that be something you consider? I think if you're going to specialize, uh, I think at most usually people can pull off two to three body parts at a time. Anything much higher than three and you're going to exceed your total body MRV or you'll have to drive down your other body parts so much that they'll just be losing mass. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to train my hamstrings and glutes so hard, I'm just going to train quads with two sets per week. Like, okay. They're not really bodybuilding anymore. You're going to start losing quad mass. So... <laughs> um, I think two to three is the answer, and I think that choosing an upper and a lower is a great start. Um, so there's not about a lot of overlap with them. Uh, I think that's good. Another thing I can add to the bodybuilding stuff is remember that um, training really, really close to MRV for really extended periods is really taxing, and there's some long-term fatigue that starts to accumulate. And more so than fatigue, there starts to be an accumulation of adaptive resistance. You can't just continue to get better at stuff linearly. Yeah. So people make a mistake of saying, okay, I want biceps to be my focus. I'm just going to, for the following six mesocycles straight, I'm going to prioritize biceps. What I think is a much better uh, approach is to do specific training to general training if you want specific development in a two-to-one ratio of mesocycles. So what I mean by that is you have two mesocycles of bicep focus, one mesocycle of general focus then back to biceps for two mesocycles, then one mesocycle of general focus. If you want to bring up one body part and another equally, you can have a bicep focus, 
mesocycle, then a tricep focused mesocycle, then a general mesocycle, then a bicep, then a tricep, then a general, and that allows you to have a good deal of both. But I think the most you can do for any one body part is probably two mesocycles back to back of focus. I have made the mistake of trying to do more. It doesn't work. <laughs> I've made it with clients. I've made it with myself. Um, you know, if you're improving your quads for a month, they can improve. For two months, they can improve. You got to give them a break after that, um, and then you can start back on quads anyway. And you know what I would say is, you know, accumulate volume loads through the first mesocycle. Switch exercises, like let's say a, a leg press and squat basis for your first mesocycle for quad emphasis. Put that away. Finish it up. Then do a hack squat. Uh, and squat basis or hack squat and lunge basis and then finish that and then go to just regular low bar or high bar squatting low volumes let your legs really really recover let them develop adaptive proclivity again you're going to so so then it's probably a good idea to give that body part a break you'll keep what you've gained you won't gain any more and then you'll get back into uh, training for another two minute cycles and make further gains um, people have trouble with that psychologically so I think it's worth to address that in an ideal world, would you rather continue to keep gaining? Um, you know, so, God, that's really annoying. Sorry, folks. So in an ideal world, would you continue to keep gaining uh, and always work on your weaknesses? Yes. Is it cool to look in the mirror <clears throat> during uh, a sort of maintenance desensitization mesocycle for biceps and notice that your biceps are no bigger than they were three weeks ago? No, it's not any fun, but you but you got to set things up to have the best progress. And I think that, that goes just as a good general lesson on exercise. Probably life, maybe even. A lot of things aren't for the now, they're for the later. Setting up is as important as doing what it takes. <clears throat> so setting up great gains means backing away for a little while and then capitalizing on them. If you just want to compulsively always train your biceps, you know, you'll definitely feel like you're doing something, but they won't be much bigger at the end of the process. In yeah. terms of volume, how much kind of would you move maybe if you were kind of letting your hamstrings maintain and you're killing your quads? Would you maybe take away a third from your hamstrings, add a third to your quads? Would you do that sort of amount, or would it be like half and then double it? Or So probably a third and a third, because half and double, remember, were your quads really that far below their per-muscle group MRV? I sure hope not, because then you're going to train the shit out of them. So if you, can, if you can multiply your quad volume by two, what the hell were you doing before then? Right? So it, definitely not double. And, and that's where another, and I'm glad you brought this up, Steve, because people go wrong in that. They get this idea, and it's an assumption of linearity, kind of. I'm sure wherever Greg is, he'd appreciate that I use that kind of technical term. And people say, you know, I want bigger biceps. I'm just going to double my training for them. Like, Jesus, if it was only that simple, you know. Uh, I, I don't think it is, and you may very well find that you and, – and people do it all the time. They write about it in bad bodybuilding magazines later. Like, yeah, I wanted to bring it to my chest. I trained it double. It shrank, and then I realized I was overtraining it to begin with. It's like, well, there you go. So <laughs> – just small changes here and there. You can, I'll tell you what, so general body training is within your total body MRV, you can already get great gains for a bunch of muscle groups. That specialization is just a little bit, maybe one-third, maybe even a quarter of the volume increase, and then you're at your body part MRV already. So I don't think it's like double or triple or anything like that. <clears throat> which is why it's weird to me when people do like weird online programs. They're like, oh, we're doing German volume training, like 10 sets of 10. Like, fuck, like... 
Why? Really? You think you think you can survive that? And they're like, you really think your legs can handle that? And they're like, yeah. Like so, so why don't you train more like that all the time? Yeah. Well, like, well, I don't know. Jeez. And where do you go from there? It's kind of like ten sets of ten. That's quite a lot. Oh, <laughs> you. I don't know. Do you think? Do you think it's worth also pointing out again? And I know you, you you definitely touched on this at the start of the podcast. But if people are going to run specific specialization blocks that they actually commit to that block properly as in if they're running a, a specific uh, block for bringing about um, their back so they're going to specialize back training for that block but if they're so if they're accumulating volume along a, me- a mesocycle with their back training should they, or I would hope people would uh, be kind of easing off somewhat on, or at least maintaining maybe their bicep work, because you know if you're if you're actually hammering your back, but you're not, but you're trying to push your bicep training along with that, then you potentially are not going to be recovered enough from your possibly your arm work to then progress with your back training. You know, do you know what I mean? So absolutely, I, th- yeah. I think I think there are some muscles that you can choose to bring up together. There are other muscles that are really hard to bring up together because they interfere with each other's training. A lot of that you can obviate in training design, but some of that's really hard. So, for example, if you want to bring up your back and your biceps at the same time, if you really train your biceps as hard as you can, it's going to interfere with your back training. If you really train your back as hard as you can, then your biceps are really tired uh, through indirect work, kind of junk volume, right? And they still get some good stimulus, but not nearly as, as good as they could have. So with muscle groups that generally do a lot of the same stuff, you probably have to pick one or the other to, to hypertrophy them uh, for specialization. Because if you pick them both, then they kind of both interfere with each other too much. Here's another example. Front delts and chest. Like, if you really push your front delts, your chest volume is going to suck because you're going to be sore all the time and fatigued in your front delts, and that's a huge part of every pushing movement for chest. But if you push front delts and quads in the same mesocycle, yeah, you can push the shit out of both of those completely. You don't want to interfere with each other. I don't even know. I don't know a single exercise in which front delt uh, interference with quad, maybe front squats, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, really easy to train them both super-duper hard. And then the muscles that they would interfere with, you kind of back burner those muscles when you come back. So it's, I think it's a really good idea to have like a, like a back emphasis mesocycle, then uh, go to a so like a maybe like a back and uh, back and hamstring emphasis mesocycle, and then later go into you know a, a bicep and quad emphasis mesocycle. And that way you get you know a lot of the, the benefits without a ton of interference. And, and a lot of that stuff is just it's not something I have to say. Yeah, no, absolutely for people to know, you just have to pay attention and be intuitive in your training. Like, if you're supposed to have amazing bicep sessions, but they're too tired from all your back work, like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that maybe you shouldn't prioritize both of those at the same time. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I think we probably covered the subject pretty well. I don't know if, Mike, if you've got anything else to add, or if Mark's got anything else to ask. It's fine. Yeah, we covered that one pretty well. If I just try and summarize briefly... So we know we've got this kind of cap of MRV, and someone looking to do specialization training for bodybuilding purposes probably wants to be advanced. They want to be, before they really consider this, build up their base. 
build up a good foundation, and then we chisel away and make these smaller body parts better. That's for someone that wants kind of the total best physique they can get to. If they focus on trying to build everything at the same rate, they're probably kind of, just like in a football team, I was thinking, kind of you're as good as your worst player, you're only going to be as good as your worst body part. It's going to slow you down. So better to bring everything up at it the rate it can, and then once you're, you've got your best body parts as big as they can, then you can focus on the little ones and do that in kind of a structured and sensible manner and not kind of go crazy. One third from one, one third to another, and balance that across mesocycles. Um, yeah, so I don't think people will be confused about specialization cycles anymore. Yeah. Well, maybe. And there's a lot of stuff left unsaid and kind of there's a lot of stuff that's still mysterious, but it, the stuff we've talked about I don't think is very mysterious. So, you know, I can always say, you know, you can make all the mistakes in the world except for the ones that people have made a lot before you. Then it's just ignorance. <laughs> so I make we may make tons of mistakes, but if people have already explained why they're mistakes and you're still making them, eh, I don't know what to say. Definitely. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Mike, for coming on the podcast again. And Mark, thank you as well. And we'll catch you guys soon. Please, guys, review the podcast, comment away. Check out Mike's stuff in particular. He's putting out great content all the time. He's on other podcasts as well, and uh, he'll really appreciate you asking him questions, I'm sure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, guys. Cool. Cheers, Mark. Cheers, Mike. Cheers, guys.